0: family. Scripture reading this morning will be Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 13. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does, but what it does say, the word. But, oh, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved. For it is in your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is by your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. This is God's Word. You may be seated.
1: Grab those sermon outlines that you find inside of the, uh, the announcement sheet. We'll use them as uh, we go through this uh, study of Romans 10 this morning. We're continuing, in fact, this is the 14th message on Romans that uh, that we've been studying along with our uh, uh, our adult classes on Sunday morning, the Book of Romans. It was part of the Insight Seminar back in January. And uh, we're we're grateful for this great book, and we're grateful for this this heart of the book, chapters 9, 10, and 11, that we're going to be looking at uh, last week, this week, and the week to come. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father we're staggered under the the pleasure and the blessing of your promises. It's 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 so much better than we could ever ever imagine. How you you cleanse our our souls and consciences from guilt. How You put Your Spirit inside of us in such a way that we're changed that that through faith and trust in the Gospel, Father, of what it is that, that Christ did on the cross and, and and through His death, burial, and resurrection brings us into a newness of life where... Our experience of you every day is not just promised, but it is, it's its life-changing. And that there's nothing, that our, our experience of your love is not just intellectual, but we know in our soul and in our bones that there is nothing... In this physical, tangible world or or in the invisible world that ever separates us from Your love, we are just staggered by that. And what we do this morning, Father, is commit ourselves as disciples to Your Son Jesus to live a life that is worthy of the grace, the gift, the salvation that we have received in Him. And we pray, Father, for a deeper understanding of Your Word in, in, in such a way, Father, that, that not only do we understand ourselves and the world around us, but we understand You and Your will and Your purpose for us. So, to this end, Father, as we think of Romans 10 this morning, give us eyes that see and ears that hear in order to discern and to know, Father, what it is that this text is, is saying to us Your voice through Paul's pen this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill Hybels, you may know the name, uh, leads uh, uh, one of the the larger Protestant churches in North America. He tells the story of reading his Bible uh, one evening in, in a restaurant in Chicago. A woman goes into that restaurant, sees him reading the Bible, and she asks with sort of a tone, A little bit of a militant tone in her voice. Why in the world are you reading that? And points to the Bible. Well, Hybels, who if you've read his his books, and he's a a gifted writer, he is also extremely gifted at at starting these edgy religious conversations. And he looked up from his reading and he said, because I don't feel like going to hell today. And she said, well, what in the world? There's no such thing as heaven or hell. And he said, why do you say that? And she said, well, everybody knows that when you die, your candle just goes out. Poof. And he asked, you mean to tell me that there's no such thing as afterlife? Nope, she said. That means you can do whatever you want to do in this life. That's right. Hybels went on, no judgment day, no justice from God, no one gives an account of how they have lived their life, none of that. The woman said, that's right. That's right. Hybels went on, that's fascinating. Where did you hear all of that? She said, I read it somewhere. He asked, can you give me the name of, uh, of the book? I don't remember. Well, can you give me the name of the author? Ah, I forgot his name. He pressed. Did he write any other books? She said, I don't know. So Heibels then said, alright, let me see if I got this straight. You're rolling the dice on your eternity predicated on what, on what someone whose name you can't remember wrote in a book whose title you can't recall. Did I get that straight? She said, yeah. Do you know what I think, friend? He said to her, I think you've created a belief that guarantees the continuation of your unencumbered lifestyle. I think you find it comfortable to think about heaven and hell that you find it very uncomfortable to think about heaven and hell and that you have just made all this other stuff up. End of quote. Edgy conversation. But a lot of, a, a lot of tremendous truth to it. Uh, one, it reminds me of something that Dallas Willard wrote in an article entitled Your Place in the World. Wrote it back. You can still access it on, on, um, on the internet. Wrote it back in 2005. He said, this is the deal. You are, as a Christian, an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny. Do you believe that? It's true. And very simply put, that destiny, my destiny, your destiny, that destiny, that eternal destiny is determined by a rock. It is. Hear what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 9, verse 33 specifically. He says, As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to what? Stumble. And a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in Him will never be put to shame. See, I lay in Zion a stone That causes people to stumble. A rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in Him, the one who believes in Him, will never be put to shame. Circle that word stumble in your Bibles or write it down on that outline and put a star next to it. Here's the question. Have you ever seen anybody stumble? The answer is, of course you have. If you've not seen it in person, then you've probably stumbled yourself. Or you've seen it on television. But but what happens when somebody stumbles? When they're reading a book or they're thinking about something having a conversation, walking down the street and they stumble, they just don't keep going, right? What happens when somebody stumbles? They stop and they turn around and they say, what in the world? And what they do is they begin to look at the very thing that made them stumble. A root in the path, a crack in the sidewalk, uh, an extension cord across the floor, a kid's toy. And they begin to focus their attention on that. What do people say... When they see somebody stumble, watch where you're walking. Careful now. Watch where you're walking. Look at the road. Eyes on the road. Now, that's an interesting thing that Paul writes about the gospel, about the Christ, that he is a stone that could cause you to stumble. And in choosing that word, not only is he just quoting Scripture from the Old Testament, but he's also quoting a Scripture with a metaphor or an image in it that that makes us stop and think, why in the world stumble? It's because of what he's writing about in these chapters. Of making sure that when you get an eyeful of the Christ, that you get an eyeful of the understanding of what it is that the Christ represents. Now, we are in that section of Romans that deals with God's relationship with Israel in light of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is, as Paul writes, He is the rock upon which you will build your life. Or He is the rock that you will stumble over and if you are not careful, fall. Now this morning we are in some of the most difficult texts to interpret in the New Testament. I want to recap quickly to make sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to the context. Now, what you'll remember in this sermon series we've been doing is that we actually started not in chapter one but in chapter sixteen. And that's where all of those names are, are located. And Paul says, Greet this one and that one, and greet this one that I love, and greet this one, who's my partner in the gospel, and greet this one who is is, is not only this guy's mother, but he's a mother, she's a mother to me. And so he says, greet one another in that chapter 16. He says, greet, 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 greet. He means not just say hello to them, but warmly embrace them, to hug them and to warmly embrace them. But here's the problem. He can't start the book off in that chapter. He can only end with that because that's the issue. And he has to get them to a place where they can do chapter 16 in the first 15 chapters. And so Paul begins to to not just to... Uh, to to give them theology, but to give them theology or the understanding, the doctrine of the Bible and the Gospel in a way that they can understand what it is that they've been called to become in Christ. You see, the problem is, and the reason he has to tell them at the end of the book to grieve one another is because they're messed up in the area of race relations. Gentiles troubled by the Jewish presence in that church after about a 10 to 12 year absence because Claudius had thrown all of the Jews out 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 of Rome. And now that Claudius is gone, we're talking about uh, 54 to 56 B.C., right in that area, and the Jewish people have begun to come back to Rome, and that the Christian, the Jewish Christians, are wanting to meet with the Gentile Christians, and there's a problem. How can they greet one another with all of the messed up ideas and theology and doctrine and, and presuppo- uh, 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 presuppositions that they have about the Jewish people? And with all of all of that... That messed up theology, how can they be one in Christ and represent Christ in the ways that the gospel needs to be represented in Rome if they can't get along with one another or they can't accept one another or they can't even stand to be in the same room with one another. And so Paul begins with the gospel which is always a great place to start when people are not getting along with one another because it's a reminder that the Gospel is the power of God, not just a message, but it is a power to change people's lives. It saves people from their lostness. Jews and Gentiles alike need the power of God to save them. And not only is it a power to save, but it is a life-changing experience to trust and to believe the gospel. And what will unite them in that church is an understanding that every person that makes up the body of Christ in Rome back when this was being written was that they were lost and they were sinful and they did not have a chance out of that sinfulness and that lostness and and to come out from being an object of the wrath of God and to become an object of His mercy and His love unless Christ did it for them. But it brings up a question. They go, okay, we get... We get the Gospel. But how do we make sense of the Old Testament then? We understand that we're all trophies of God's grace, that at the foot of the cross we've all been leveled. But explain to us the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Well, last Sunday night we looked at Romans chapter 9, which was Paul demonstrating that God has not acted unjustly in establishing righteousness through faith in Christ. That that was always a part of His plan. He'll say that He chose us in Him to the church in Ephesus struggling with the same kinds of things. He said before the creation of the world, we were to be chosen in Christ. The fourth verse of the first chapter. It was always a part of His plan. And throughout Romans Paul has argued that God's relationship with man that was broken through the faithlessness and the lack of trust in God's word going all the way back to Genesis 3 that from that point on it would uh, primarily Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham that that would be reestablished through trusting faith. And Romans chapter 10 demonstrates the place of obeying the gospel. The key verse is this. Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for whom, church? Everyone or everyone who believes? That's how we come into it, is recognizing our own lostness and our own feeble weakness when it comes to climbing out of that hole that we've dug for ourselves and that it is through our belief and our faith and our trust in Christ expressed and demonstrated in our baptism where we literally participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we find ourselves being, being the recipients of every blessing that is in Christ. And so what we want to do this morning in the time that uh, we have less, left is to walk through The text. And we're going to do we're going to take four steps and the steps are these the prayer the wrong righteousness thirdly the attainable and available righteousness and then we'll end with penetrating questions Let's begin with the prayer Paul begins the chapter with a prayer he says in verse 1 brothers and sisters my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved that they may be saved now, once again, Paul writes about his desire for a spiritual turnaround for Israel. That's the way he began chapter 9, remember? It becomes the subject of his prayers. When Paul thinks about people in the world, and he is the, the, the apostle, the missionary to the Gentile world. He's the one that's traveling all over Asia Minor Minor, and Achaia and Macedonia and, and Greece and, and is wanting to go all the way over to Western Europe, the farthest in to Spain to preach the Gospels to people who have never heard it before. But in his prayer is a desire for the spiritual turnaround for Israel. It becomes a subject of his prayers. He prays for his people to find salvation rather than to continue in their state of rebellion. Now this morning, Mark Blankenship got up and talked to us about what's happening in the world of missions and our involvement in it from sending people to, to Taiwan a couple of of of, uh, uh, trips this summer, one in July and one in September. We also have uh, a lot of works that we support from from Chile to to Swaziland uh, in South Africa to to Bibles being distributed in Eastern Europe and the Ukraine. Prayer is an important piece of the action, a, a piece of the program for any group of Christians who care about people discovering the love of God through the Gospel of Jesus. And Paul is, is, is not praying for them to get religious. He's not praying for them to, to, to develop some religious acts. What he prays about is them getting the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 2, I testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on what? Knowledge. You know, people say all the time, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're what? Sincere. That you really believe it deep down in your heart. The problem is is that you can sincerely believe that you have money in the bank and sincerely bounce a check. A pilot of a jet flying through the clouds can sincerely believe that he's flying higher than the mountains and sincerely crash that plane into the side of the mountains. Paul understands, as well as anybody in this room, what the problem of zeal without knowledge can do to a human being in light of the Gospel of Christ. Paul sincerely thought that he was serving God by persecuting the church and holding the coats of those that stoned Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. And he thought he was sincerely doing the work of God on the road to Damascus. And he discovered that he was sincerely wrong and sincerely lost on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Scales had to fall from his eyes in order to see the greatness of what Christ has accomplished in the cross. There's more to it than zeal. And prayer is an essential part of sharing the knowledge of the good news. You know, Paul is, is, is concerned about people understanding the gospel. Do you know that the gospel to Paul was so precious and so wonderful? I mean, just think about all of the things that he went through in order for people to, to have that blessing to be turned by God into a beauty by the Gospel, for them to experience the joy and the peace and, and the salvation and the empowerment by God to change and, and, and to find that love and the experience of sonship with God and daughtership with God, all of these things, that was so great to him that he was willing to go through anything and everything in order to be to, to, to teach people about the cross of Jesus. And so he writes to the church in Colossae. He says, you know what? The Gospel is such a wonderful thing. I want everybody to know I'm willing to go through anything, but I need your help. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful and thankful and pray for us too. Oh, Paul, we pray for you all the time. To be safe. To have the money that you need. To be healthy. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it what? Clearly. Proclaim it clearly as I should. You know, a part of our prayers every day and a part of our prayers on the first day of the week when we come together as a church body should be, Father, we pray not only for the faithfulness of those that share the Gospel in foreign lands that we are in partnership with, but pray for their fruitfulness. To pray for open doors. To to, to pray that the message may be proclaimed clearly as it should. Why? Because religious zeal counts for nothing unless there's the knowledge of Christ. And the prayer leads Paul to to talk about the reason for Israel's stumbling when it comes to the Messiah. It was the wrong righteousness. They were zealous. They were full of zeal. They were zealous for God but it was the wrong righteousness that they had zeal for. Earlier in the letter, Paul has written, chapter 3, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets testify to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. But there is, unfortunately, a different kind of righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 3, they did not know that righteousness of God, of which the Law and the Prophets testify and point to, and sought to establish their what? Own. They did not submit to what? God's righteousness. You see, in a nutshell, it was this. Israel chose self-righteousness over God's righteousness. You know, one of the great historical ironies is how difficult a time religious people have with grace. Religious thinking can be so tied up into religious doing that trusting faith can wander over into another, sort of a Christian form of legalism. And that legalism becomes self-righteousness. And as you know, truly being being righteous in yourself is impossible and it's unattainable. And to make sure that they get the point, Paul reminds them of something that Moses wrote all the way back in Leviticus chapter 18. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now he has already said you can't do it. When you go back to Leviticus chapter 18 and the verse that he's reminding them of, after Paul... Uh, Moses says this, Moses begins to give a massive list of commands. And the reason Paul does this is to quickly remind them that self-righteousness does not work. He's already made that point. No one is perfect and no one keeps the law of God perfectly. He's already sinned. In Romans chapter 7, verse 11, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. That's why verse 4 is so key. Christ is the culmination. He is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Which leads to the third step, which is the attainable and the available righteousness. God's righteousness is a gift that He bestows freely on those who believe. Who turn towards Him. God's righteousness is available and attainable, as Paul will write in verses 6 and 7, alluding back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, that you don't need to try to climb into heaven. That's impossible. You can't do it. You're a human being. God is in his heaven, surrounded by his core attribute and characteristic of holiness. There is no way, even if we could kind of get close to it, that we could get into it because of that holiness. But Christ has come to you. You don't need to die for your sins. Because Christ has done that for you. In other words, the Word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, circle those words, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him, circle these words, from the dead, you will be saved. He's saying that the Gospel is something that gets inside of you. The Gospel gets inside of you when you believe it. When He says Jesus is Lord, that is aligning your life with Jesus as sovereign and as King and the ruler of your life. God raised Him from the dead is the understanding that this is what He did for you. And Paul says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to when it comes to this kind of need of the Gospel. And he says, you know, the same Lord, verse 12, is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God wants people to come to Him. God wants people people to understand the, the greatness of the benefits of being in relationship with it. It's not an easy life, and sometimes it's a life that, that is filled with pain, but it is a life that is filled with attributes and blessings and characteristics and, and, and goodness that transcends and trumps all of that bad stuff that comes into our life. That's why Paul can say, you know, I'm in prison right now, but I want you to pray for me that God will open doors for the Gospel to be proclaimed. And I want you to pray this for me as well, that I may proclaim it clearly as it should be in order for people to understand the knowledge of the Gospel. Even though Paul is in prison when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, you know what? Hey, don't think of this as a bad deal because I'm in prison. It's not that he enjoyed being in prison or that he was a masochist in any sense of the word. But Paul was so was so saturated and so drenched in the blessings of the Gospel that He could say, hey, this is not the end. That even in this darkness, there's light. Even in this valley, there is something that lifts me up. Even even in, in, in this pain, there is something that soothes my soul. So the question is, if the message is proclaimed and the message is believed and people are saved, then why isn't Israel saved then? So he says in verse 16, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. The good news that that God wants everyone to understand, that God wants everyone to embrace and to trust and to believe in and to have that faith in. Well, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. And sadly, this is not anything new. You go all the way back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah has the same issue. Lord, who has believed our message? So Paul begins to ask the penetrating questions. If you're a parent or a husband or a wife, a spouse, you know that some questions are asked for information. (laughs) And some are, are asked to get the thinking started. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? What were you thinking? They're the kinds of questions that are asked, not for information, but to get to the root of the problem. And so after everything that Paul has said, question number one, verse 18, did they not hear? The answer is, of course they did, verse 18. Question two, did Israel not understand? The problem was not understanding, but stubbornness which is one of the key uh, byproducts of self-righteousness. The blessing of the Gentiles with the Gospel was to open Israel's eyes to the true nature of God. And to open their eyes to what it is that God is trying to, to accomplish in the world. It was to melt their stubbornness. But it was not merely humility without hope of redemption and reconciliation. Verse 21 But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The chapter ends with a picture of God holding His hands out like this and saying, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. You know, that's that's what it is that God says to everyone. You know, Paul, Paul will say, you, you know, there's 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 enough in creation for you to kind of get the idea that there is a God, that this just did not happen. There is a knowledge of God that everyone possesses, and you have to do something with that knowledge. You either say, y- you know, I don't really like what that knowledge infers, that I'm not God, that I'm not the creator, that I'm not in charge, that I don't have all power to, you know, do delight life the way that I want to do my life. And so you exchange it for a lie, and You, but instead of being in charge of your own life, what happens? Idols fill that place, and it becomes not just a reckless life, but a wrecked life in a lot of ways. And then there are people that say, you know what, I don't really want God to be God, but I want to be moral. I, you know, I, I believe that there's a good way to live your life. And Paul says, you know what, you can't even do the things that you know that are right. I mean, you're guilty of even your own laws. And there are others that say, well, listen, y'all, isn't it a good thing that we have a direct revelation from God, that we possess His Word, that we, you know, that we have this heritage that goes all the way back in our DNA, this legacy that goes all the way back to Abraham. You know, the way that we say, you know, I'm okay with God because my dad was a preacher, or my mom was a Sunday school teacher, or my dad was an elder or a deacon. That just doesn't work. It doesn't work what works is seeing that there is a God who wants to embrace you and is willing in patience through stubbornness or obstinate thinking and emotional whatever to keep to keep continually opening a door and asking you to walk through it because he's saying here I am here I am here I in fact, he was so willing for there to be no doubt about what God looked like that he left heaven and came to us. And Jesus said, You know, when you see me, you see the Father. The Father and I are one. Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 that when you look at Jesus, you see the invisible nature of God. And when you look at Jesus, and everything that He did, and everything that He promised, and every word that He taught, and all of the promises that He made, it's God Himself saying, here I am. Do you believe it? That there is a God who is willing great cost to Himself, great sacrifice to Himself, to bring you into His arms and to enfold you as a child, as a daughter, as a son. And every blessing of inheritance that you could ever imagine, it's poured into your heart in love. That's the question this morning. The penetrating question this morning is do you believe that? And if you have believed it and have obeyed the Gospel as as is spoken of in, in, in Romans of being... You know, believing and hearing that message and confessing that Jesus is Lord and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sin to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we praise God. We love God. We serve God. We're transformed by God. We turn into many Christs through His help. But if you've never answered that question, if you've never responded to God saying, here I am, then don't let any more time pass by. Time is so precious, is it not? Don't let any more time pass by. Respond to the call of God, to the offer of God, to the blessing of God, the grace of God. By coming down to the front and talking to these shepherds who will further explain to you and talk to you about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. If that describes you, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.